A fabringen, in Yiddish a term meaning a joyous gathering, but it's really so much more. It's insight, it's inspiration, it's the bottom line. Join Rabbi Levi Avton, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. for the Fabringen, only on 101.9 High FM. This is 101.9 High FM. My name is Rabbi Levi Avton. And it's good to be with you on this uh, beautiful Tuesday. So, where are we holding? In the past two weeks, I've shared the story of my grandfather, um, just one of many, many stories. And this week, as it's still in the three weeks, in the nine days, I'll finish off and I'll share the final parts of my grandfather's story. Received quite interesting feedback um, regarding these tales. In short, for those who haven't been with us the last few weeks, I described the story of my grandfather who grew up in the early part of the 20th century, watched as his entire community fell under the spell of communism. He was the only religious kid left in town. The starvation of the 30s, um, communist forced starvation, the, the chasing of religious Jews and all religions and the gulags in the 30s and Finally, his draft to the army, his way he got out of the army. Unfortunately, his brother-in-law didn't, and his brother-in-law was lost in the army, and unfortunately, um, no one knows where he's buried. And my grandfather comes back and he from the front, and he meets his wife, my grandmother, in, somewhere in Uzbekistan in terrible conditions, and his young boy, his only son at the time, had succumbed to typhus and sickness. And my grandfather continues telling the story. Obviously, it's a large book. It's a book with over 250 pages, but and that's not even nearly a quarter of the story. But he describes how he tried to get a job and how so many times he was in life-threatening situations in Uzbekistan just to keep his family alive. All his possessions are stolen, etc. And at some stage in 1946, my grandfather feels that he, he has a bigger chance of making a living in Moscow. And together with his wife and his children, he moves to Moscow in the suburbs. And he ended up living in the, in the metropolis of Moscow for the next 20 years. So after suffering already from 30 years of persecution under communism, he spends another 20 years under communism. And he, my grandfather and family, grandmother and uncles, aunts, and my mother only made it out of Russia and made Aliyah in 1966. So the, the part of the story I'm going to focus on today is two parts. First of all, how my grandfather finds out the story of his uh, what happened to his family in the Holocaust, and then what it meant living as a religious Jew and raising a family of 13 children in Moscow in the 40s, 50s, and 60s in the Soviet Union. And as I've said before, I find it extremely ironic when people continue to bring up ideas such as socialism and communism and having suffered my family tremendously from the extreme left, which is communism, and extreme right, which is fascism, uh, extreme politics really, really doesn't resonate ever. You know, it's not an ideology. It's an ideology that actually kills people. Um, it's not just like, oh, let's create a perfect world. There's huge ramifications. So my grandfather describes how he came to Moscow in 1946, 
and he met friends from uh, Ukraine in a city next to him from Seville. And they told him that the entire community where he grew up, my grandfather grew up, which was a city called Krasnostav, Ukraine, had been wiped out on the sixth day of the month of Elul, which is actually a month from yesterday. And only two young girls had survived. One is a Kelerik girl, and the other one was the daughter of the Gabai of the town. They had fled to a nearby forest. The 850 Jews of the town were murdered in one pit, even a family that had converted before the war was killed along with the rest. Years later, the Keller girl told me that just before the shooting, my father, as in my great-grandfather, and this is my grandfather telling the story about his father, had feelingly addressed all the Jews and that he was the first one hit by the bullets. The anguish I felt pained my heart for months on end when I discovered that my family was all killed. I had already learned that my laser Pinsky, which was my wife, my sister's brother, my sister's husband, sorry, my brother-in-law, succumbed to typhus in Moscow. Of my entire family, I was the only one left. So my grandfather, although he didn't actually go and suffer from the concentration camps, he lost his entire family, and thank God he managed to save himself from being killed on the Russian front. In the middle of the winter 1945, I answer a knock on the door, and before me stood a weary stranger, gaunt, pale, and sickly. Aaron, he said, thank God I found you. I gazed on the man who was utterly unrecognizable to me. He said, it's me, Yisrael Friedman, your wife's brother's son. In other words, your wife's nephew. Yisrael, where's your mother? Where's your brother, your little brothers, Arla, your older brother? Says Aaron, that's my grandfather, he says, Aaron, I'm the only one left. Though only 20, he looked like mid-30s. He was so worn. The two of us, each the only survivor of this family, embraced and wept. And I'm going to share with you now um, the short um, version of what my grandfather's nephew went through. Um, but before then, I just want to play another piece of a cappella music for you on 101.9 Chai FM. This tune we're going to play for you is, um, I believe, Anima Amin, I believe, and I think it's very appropriate to the story I'm telling you today, so th- thank you so much, this is 101.9, Chai FM, thank you for listening, we'll be back just after this. This is the Fabringen with Rabbi Levi Avton on 101.9, Chai FM. This is 101.9 Chai FM, Rabbi Levi Atzin talking to you, and I'm sharing a story of my grandfather. Discam Linksfield has opened a magnificent new store in a neighborhood complex in Linksfield, corner of Sivan and Club Street. It's a full-line Discam store, which means that in addition to your meds, supplements, hygiene, and health foods, Discam Linksfield has a wellness and well-baby clinic. There's ample free parking, and remember, Discam also do free delivery. That's Discam Linksfield, pharmacists who care. So at some stage in 1945, my grandfather is at home in Uzbekistan and where he escaped from, where he escaped to during World War II. And his wife's nephew shows up and informs her that the whole family had been killed by the Nazis. My grandfather continues the story. I brought Yisrael into the house, my nephew, where my wife served him food. Both of us cried with him, how bad he looked, how swollen from hunger, and what horrors had befallen his family. His terrible sufferings had aged him. He was weak from lack of food, hard labor, and beatings. 
Yisrael related that shortly after the Germans took over Odessa, which is where they all, my whole family comes from, partisans blew up the Gentral GPU building, which is the Russian, um, used to be the Russian Secret Service, which was serving as German headquarters, killing dozens of Nazi shoulders, soldiers. In retaliation, the Germans had rounded up tens of thousands of Jews and slaughtered them en masse. Arla, his brother, had died in this massacre. The Germans then began to make house searches to recruit young men for forced labor. Yisrael, who was 16, was taken together with a neighbor's son and 50 others. They performed hard labor for the Germans the entire day. That fateful first afternoon, however, was discovered that one youth had escaped. The Germans decided to punish everyone in the group. They brought them to a narrow ditch and had the boys crouch on their knees inside the pit. Yisrael had prepared himself and was already saying the Shema and confession when the shots rang out. Blood began to gush and soon filled the canal, reaching to the boy's neck. Then the Germans came to the corpses and bashed each head with the handle of a rifle to see if they were still alive. Satisfied that their work was done, they moved on. Yisrael was miraculously untouched, but he was too frightened to move. He waited a few hours before cautiously poking his head out of the ditch. The field was completely deserted except for something very far off. The Germans were emptying a volley of bullets into another group of victims. He quickly lowered his head and remained in the ditch until no Germans could be seen. Finally, he got out slowly, checked the other bodies of the ditch. All were dead except for one Jew who had been seriously wounded. Yisrael helped them out and supported him while the man went home. On the way, they met the Gentile woman and begged her to give them clean clothes since theirs were soaked with blood. But the woman fled. There was not one person on the street. Yisrael dropped the man off at home and then walked back to his family. Coming into the courtyard, he met the mother of the other boy who had been conscripted to him. Where were you? She asked fearfully. I was at the abattoir. They didn't let everyone go home. If I bribe them, she says, do you think they will let my son come home? Yisrael had no words for her because he had been her only child. Yisrael was careful to avoid being caught in other house searches. His younger brothers stayed on the outlook and when the Germans approached, he would hide behind a closet. Finally, the day came when the remaining Jews of Odessa were all rounded up and forced to march, march on a seemingly endless journey. With pitiful food rations and no medical aid, the physical strain proved too much to the emaciated, weak prisoners. One by one, Yisrael's brothers died on the side of the road. Yisrael was the only survivor. He was taken into Romania and made to, to labor for the Germans for one and a half years till the Germans began their retreat. Then they herded all the prisoners onto a freight train and let fled. Israel was packed together with numerous prisoners, some of whom had collaborated with the Nazis. They somehow found a saw and cut a hole into the floor of the train. Many of these former Nazi collaborators were afraid that even if they escaped the Nazis, they would be made to pay for their anti-Jewish activities by the Russians. They helped Israel escape, hoping this deed would count in their favor. He lowered himself through the hole under the train and lay between the ta- tracks in deserted terrain. The train disappeared behind him. He was a free man. But now what? He started walking towards Odessa, hoping to find his father, but the city was empty of anyone he had known. Finally, upon hearing he had relatives in Uzbekistan, he came hoping to find us. That is just one tiny part of a Holocaust story of one of the, one family who suffered untold victims, um, untold torture during the Holocaust, and this Israel, which is my mother's first cousin, eventually um, got married, 
and ended up raising a beautiful family together with my grandfather. He raised a family in Moscow and eventually he made it to Israel. He has many living descendants living in Israel. He only passed away about a year or two ago um, after uh, surviving the Holocaust, surviving communism and doing incredible stuff. Um, an incredible character in his life. This is 101.9 Chai FM. My name is Rabbi Levi Aftsen, uh, the rabbi of Linksfield Shul, and I will be back in just one moment. See you after this. This is the Fabringen with Rabbi Levi Aftsen on 101.9 Chai FM. So in 1946, my grandfather decides he is ready to leave Russia. But as I said earlier, he doesn't make it out. He tried to go to Lemberg, which had uh, was allowing people at the time in that city to go over to Poland. But by the time he arrived in Lemberg, or by the time he arrived in Moscow, he had found out that there was no way to get out of Lemberg. The, they received a telegram. Relatives in Lemberg felt sick, uh, fell sick, which was a coded message to mean that they had caught Jews trying to slip across the border. Now security would be tightened and they would be on alert for religious Jews. My other grandfather actually made it out at this time. Both of my grandfathers were living in Russia at the time. And my other grandfather, my father's father, was one of the people who made it out from Lemberg. Um, there was a bit of a scam at the time that after World War II, a lot of Polish people had been pushed in deep into Russia. And they were allowed to go out back to Poland. So many Jews who were not Polish citizens managed to find documents of people who had either died in Russia or were willing to sell them their documents, and they managed to go out as Poles. And that way, hundreds and hundreds of Jewish families managed to get out of Russia, including my father's parents. But my mother's parents didn't manage. By the time they got to Moscow, on the way to Lemberg, it was too late, and they, they were stuck. We had no choice but to remain in Moscow. Thus began a 20-year period of fighting to keep Shabbat and educate our children amidst privation and great personal risk. The room we rented was actually the whole of a house, about two and a half by three and a half meters square. It was bare. The owners, a widow and her two children, had to walk through the hall to leave and enter the house. When we decided to remain in Moscow, the owners gave us two closets, a portable oven, and a kerosene heater. We needed the heater desperately since the room was poorly insulated. Remember, this is Moscow. Even in September, we were suffering from cold gusts blowing in through the cracks. By the time winter arrived, the cold was unbearable, but I cannot even think of moving out. Although I soon found work, I barely made enough to buy food. At the time, the authorities were rationing over six out 600 grams of bread to each worker and just 400 grams to every other Moscow citizen. Just to get Moscow residency took me several weeks of pleading with the local municipality and supplying them with bribes. Even after we became residents, though, we still not still did not get the portion of bread to to our oldest two children, since we did not sorry we didn't get bread for our oldest two children since we did not dare write their names in the registry book of our building. Because once a child's name appeared there, he automatically was registered for the local school. And we could not have the risk of our children attending school as we have no excuse that would exempt them from attending on Shabbat. Furthermore, if our Shabbat observance was discovered, we would immediately be imprisoned and our children taken into custody by the communists. Thus began our stay in in Moscow, hungry, cold, and not even receiving the scant portion of bread everyone else received. 
I cannot even dream of buying bread from the black markets. It's a one kilo loaf cost a hundred rubles. And I was making between 700 and 800 rubles a month. Before Rosh Hashanah, I heard that a neighbor, an old man, had a Torah at home. I had a, I had a chauffeur with me that I had made in Uzbekistan. In, in my one room, we got together a minion on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. I led the service for Musaf and read the Torah both days. Then Sukkot arrived. Never had I been without a sukkah, but now I totally lacked resources. The day before Sukkot, I noticed that my Jewish neighbor was building an extra room to his house. The walls were already up and the ceiling was missing. Perfect for a sukkah. I asked this neighbor if I could make a sukkah in one corner of the room, at least for the first evening of the holiday, but he refused. Thank God his wife heard me talking and she said to me in Yiddish, tell me what you need. She let me have the whole room and let me stay there throughout Sukkot. This is my grandfather's life in Moscow. He starts describing the job chasing he went through. For 20 years, my grandfather, this is already after 30 years of communism, but the next 20 years, he already has a family now. He's trying to keep Shabbat and earn a living. I found a job weaving shawls in a factory. The director was Jewish and he accepted my stipulation that I would not work on Shabbos. He says, you can stay here as long as no one realizes what you're doing. When you're found out, you'll have to leave, but you can resign. At least by not being fired, your chances of finding a new job won't be so bad. I worked, I took work from the factory to do at home and slowly but surely, um, I, I felt like I was making a bit of a living. The sense of fear that had dogged me all my life still accompanied me though, and the danger now was greater than ever, for I knew when I had left Tashkent that the authorities had begun investigating clandestine religious activities. I had been the principal of four Jewish schools, a criminal offense that carried a heavy punishment. My 80 pupils, their parents and many others, had all witnessed my illegal activities, and it would take to cause my arrest was one of these people informing on me. Informing being almost a Russian pastime. Acquaintances would exasperate my worries by telling me to shave off my beard. I was inviting catastrophe. They said by just walking in the streets, I was inviting problems. It came to the point where should some stranger look at me twice, I was convinced that he was watching me. If while walking I felt someone's eyes on me, I would turn down a different street, return home by a twisted route. I was haunted by these delusions. Although I knew that most of the time no one was actually there, my fears were so overpowering, I could not help reacting as I did. This is the way I lived for 20 years. My typical parting from my wife was, May Hashem help me return home. Because of my worries, I was afraid to do anything illegal. I feared that if they found me guilty of one crime, they would uncover all my other religious illegal activities. And if convicted, a terrible fate would certainly await me. What would become of my children and their education? Without me present, what chance did they have to grow up as God-fearing learned Jews? Thus, although everyone in Russia was involved in some illegal speculation, to help them survive inflation and low wages, I kept away from even the slightest illegal act. Acquaintances would laugh at my fears. You're torturing yourself and your family, they told me. It was true that we were always hungry. The entire time we lived in Moscow, we were, had to measure out the food to each mouth. During the years we were so-called well-off, we would divide one chicken amongst 13 people. Actually, in the long run, the poverty we suffered was beneficial. All our Jewish neighbors saw how impoverished we were 
and pitied us, even when they saw me hold a minion in my house or bake matzos for Pesach and committed other questionable deeds, they never informed on me. My situation illustrated the words of the Talmud, poverty is becoming to Jews. It was from my father and grandfather that I learned to shy away from illegal gain. Since we had lived by the border, many townspeople had traded in contraband to make large, easy profits. But my father and grandfather kept away from anything illegal. They knew that if they were caught, keeping Judaism and educating children would be impossible. Better to curb our desires for the sake of Judaism, they had decided. My parents suffered terrible poverty because of their attitude, but they never regretted it. Hundreds of Jewish families lived in the Moscow suburb of Lutovo, where I lived at the time, but only one of them was fully religious, although a few others did keep kosher. Nevertheless, most had some kind of Jewish feeling, particularly in the wake of the horrors that had public, that had happened to the Jewish people the years prior in the Holocaust. My grandfather describes various areas of trying to find the mikveh, going to the great synagogue, and describing certain characters he met. My grandfather was very passionate about getting people to have circumcision. And even when he moved to Israel in 1966, he spent the rest of his life getting Russian Jews who didn't happen to have circumcision to be able to have it in the Holy Land. And my grandfather and grandmother and their 13 children suffered incredibly for the next many years. Anti-Semitism in Soviet Russia, of course, was nothing new. It had erupted in 1936, gaining momentum with each passing year. Thousands of Jews disappeared in the years 36 to 38, many of them influential Communist Party members. Although such wholesale persecutions had ended during the war years, Jews were still hated. A Jew who managed to escape from the Russians to the Russians, from the Germans to the Russian side was shown little sympathy. Frequently, he was accused of the ludicrous crime of spying for the Russians. For, sorry, he was accused by the Russians of spying for the Germans and punished with imprisonment or death. They would demand of these refugees, why have you remained alive? You must have worked with them. Nothing exemplified this national, national sentiment better than the law Stalin put together after the war, forbidding Jews to take revenge on Russian and Ukrainian Nazi collaborators. Anyone caught killing these savage murderers would himself be shot to death. This law was passed at a time when Jews were thirsty for retribution. The Ukrainian people, largely rabid anti-Semites, had been restrained during the beginning years of the communist reign when so many prominent Jewish leaders, prominent leaders were Jews. When the Nazis took over, these Gentiles took part in the Jewish massacres with abandon. The Nazi murder troops rarely had more than 900 German soldiers at their disposal, but they were able to kill tens of thousands of Jews at one time because of the zealous participation of the local Ukrainians. Even when the war was over, these peasants thirsted for blood. They did not refrain from killing those broken Jews who managed to make it back to their homes in an effort to start life afresh. Over one and a half million Jews died through their complicity. This just gives you an example. You know, often when we talk about the Holocaust, we talk about the Polish story, the Hungarian story. But the Ukraine, on the most part, they weren't sent to the gas chambers. They were killed in pits. And numbers are untold, just millions and millions. Until today, they're still discovering mass graves all across the Ukraine, including of my family. This is 101.9 Chai FM. 
You're listening to Rabbi Levi Yatsen from Linksfield Show as we're sharing a story, story of my family, but really the story of the Jewish people. Just um, as we get ready for Tisha B'Av. Thank you so much. This is the Fabringen with Rabbi Levi Afton on 101.9 High FM. I will be actually one of those speakers. I look forward to share some thoughts with you on Tisha B'Av. Please, God, in a better world, miracles can still happen. And I'm actually going to tell you a story of a miracle now. I've been describing quite a harsh um, story of my family, but here's a very interesting story. It starts off terrible, but it ends off uh, pretty amazing, miraculous, actually. See, the early Russian government was made up of a tremendous amount of Jews. Part of the communist ideal at the beginning um, had been that everybody's equal and that Jews would attain equality. That's why so many Jews ran for communism. An entire generation of Jews had been educated in Soviet schools. They had believed the communist propaganda against religion, that it was only a myth created by primitive people who could not sustain itself against modern rational thought. They were taught that the terms Jews and anti-Semitism were racial words that could not be applied to devoted Russian citizens like themselves, particularly since anti-Semitism was a ploy of the former czarist regime to divert the peasants' mind from the struggle for emancipation. Now suddenly they discovered, the Jews, that Russian citizens hated Jews and that the Russian soldiers hated their Jewish comrades. The Germans were annihilating the Jews and the Russians who were fighting the Germans also hated the Jews. Bewildered Jews were forced to admit that Jewish destiny was unique. What is a Jew? Why is he despised more than any other nation? This revelation led to a gradual revival of Jewish pride and identity as Jews began to realize how they had been taken in by the communists' empty promises. The tragedy was that no one was left who could give these Jews the guidance they sought. As long as Stalin was alive, the Jewish outcry was stifled, but it survived at a seed waiting for a chance to break through the hostile ground. Immediately after World War II, punishments against Jews accelerated. The few prominent Jews who remained were killed or sent to Siberia. The next ones to suffer were the Jewish masses. Jews were fired from their jobs for no reason, with whether professionals or workers. Jews were imprisoned on trumped-up charges to the point where jails were bursting with them. In one Jewish neighborhood, Davidovka, da- David Kova, the Jews were evicted on Yom Kippur in order to leave Moscow. There were even times when Jews were thrown out of trains and other buses. It became common for them to be insulted by hooligans. Remember, this is after they suffered from the Holocaust. Daily, the newspaper published articles laced with lies and accusations against Jews. They ranted against Jews who had dared to adopt Russian names and alerted the public to the danger of Jewish spies and traitors. There was no one to take up the side of the Jews and their general situation steadily deteriorated. I remember when people were waiting in a long line at a grocery store, says my grandfather. Tea kettles had arrived and everyone, everybody wanted to buy one. An elderly Jew asked the sales lady if he could pay for a box of candles while everyone waited, since he did not want the kettle. She refused. Let the poor fellow have it, someone snickered. He won't be around Moscow much longer. In a few days, they'll all be expelled. And things get even worse before they get better. In March 1953, the papers unveiled the notorious doctor's plot. Plot. Stalin had so-called discovered that the inner circle of Jewish doctors who had guarded his health for 20 years were now planning to poison him. These falsely accused dignitaries were imprisoned to await a trial whose outcome was a foregone conclusion. Public sentiment bristled against the Jews anew. Substantiated reports were circling that Stalin was planning to send all the Jews to Siberia. He actually prepared an area called Birbajan, where he planned on moving all the Jews all the way in the middle of nowhere. Till today, there's actually signs in Yiddish over there because 
he had created as a Jewish colony, preparing for Jews to go to this uh, deserted nowhere. During those mad days, Purim arrived, and I decided that we must not let the desperate situation break our spirit. For the first time in a long while, we made plans to celebrate the holiday in a large family circle. We invited my nephew Yisrael, who had survived the Holocaust, and their families, and another family. We were 25 men, women, and children celebrating the Purim feast in our apartment in Moscow in 1953. The gloom that hung in the air seemed more palpable than the cold gust which blew in through our windows. Our Gentile neighbors had broken them the night before. At the meal, we spoke of the troubles and persecutions that had befallen Jews in the past, which seemed to be repeating themselves in our present time. I retold the story about the Bayless blood libel of 1911. I shared the Torah thought, and I said, just like Bayless was given freedom and eventually moved to the United States, so may we be saved from this. Suddenly, two of the children jumped up on the table. My eldest son, Mordechai, Muttel, and my nephew's son, Naftali, both five years old. They each put the hand on the other's shoulders and began to dance and sing. We were astonished at their spontaneous reaction and erased our spirits. Look at this, Reb Beryl said. If little children are dancing and singing, it's a sign a miracle will happen to us. Early the next morning, we heard on the radio that Stalin was ill. The official announcement of his illness was universally understood to mean he was already dead, for they never announced when a high party member took ill. This was a miracle like the original miracle of Purim. The benefits of this tyrant's death were not long in coming. The doctors were free, and with them thousands of innocent Jewish prisoners. Antisemitism, once again, was, relatively speaking, driven underground. All our people felt the relief. A few months later, when a daughter was born to us, we named her Esther Malka, after Queen Esther, in remembrance of this modern-day deliverance. And my Aunt Esther lives currently in Jerusalem with her family of ten children, grandchildren. The smoldering embers of Jewish discontent fanned through Stalin's years did not burst into flame again till the 1960s. Then Jews searching for meaning and expression of their special identity began to appear in the thousands as shuls on holidays like Simchat Torah. A shul was the only place they could assemble without a permit since everyone was free, so-called, to worship as they please in Russian democracy. Every year, Jewish boys and girls gathered to sing and dance in the streets. They found their partner in life from these meetings, many of them. There were cases where parents and children both left secretly only to find that they had been going to the same destination. And that was just one um, ray of light in the 1950s for my gra- when Stalin suddenly died and by a miracle and the anti-Semitism, which was raising just a few years after the Holocaust, slowly abated. And although my grandfather continued suffering till 1966 from poverty and school issues, his life was never threatened again. And my grandfather's yard site was actually just this past week on the 4th of, of on Shabbat. And I will just share one final story after we come back from the break. But just to see, these are like real people, real stories. And it's again, in our time of challenges, important to remember where we come from, the resilience we have to gain perspective on the challenges of today and pray for a better future. This is 101.9 Chai FM. This is the Fabringen with Rabbi Levi Avtson on 101.9 Chai FM. 
Gosh, I have so many stories I still want to squeeze in the last few minutes of my show. I'm going to share a story not about my grandfather as much of my grandfather's children as in my mother's siblings. My mother was still a baby um, at this stage, but um, many of her older siblings had to go to school. At this stage, my grandfather allowed his children to go to Soviet schools because um, he felt that God was not even a discussion they had anymore because nobody believed in him anymore. So he felt like, although in the 30s, he would be willing to sacrifice his life not to send his kids to school. In the 60s, the kids had a strong religion at home and the schools were just secular. They weren't anti. And he, in every place he goes to, he has problems with his children's education because they don't want to come to school on Shabbos. And he um, describes various battles of fighting for the kids to go, not to have to go to school, etc., 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 in the spring of 1962, my wife and I were requested to come to the municipality. Upon arrival, we found the mayor and his counselors waiting. They told us grimly that they would not continue to sit with folded hands while we made a tempest of the school. My children themselves won't go to school on Shabbat, I said, and I certainly won't force them. In fact, I'm quite pleased about it. If you want, you could try me in court. I'm not doing anything illegal. According to the law, we can practice our religion. Listen, Chazan, the mayor said, jumping to his feet. A mountain of guilt is hanging over your head. Watch out that this mountain doesn't collapse on you. A grave punishment awaits you simply for not sending your kids to school on Shabbat. I walked home terrified. How, would, how could we think we would have managed to escape this forever? The dread was compounded by our difficult financial state since I would not engage in illegal barter, as I mentioned earlier. One time, my son who started at school, today this son is a uh, rabbi in Rome, Italy, the teacher came up with a plan. She told him that his classmates would pick him up on Shabbat and take him to school. We did not know whether to believe her words, but on Shabbat at 8 in the morning, the whole class showed up 40 strong. It was a quarter of an hour before a minion was supposed to start in my house. Two men were already there. Does Yitzchak Chazan live here? We've come to take him to school. My, I'm going to call him, my daughter said, and quickly closed the door. She ran and informed me of the situation brewing outside. I put away my talus and confronted the class. Where is Yitzchak, they screamed. He has to come to school. Yitzchak came and faced his classmates. Today I rest, he said unflinchingly. Today is my Shabbat. Tell the teacher I cannot come. After this show of strength, the teacher left him alone. One day, the principal asked me, why can't your children write on Shabbat and attend schools? All the other Jews send their children to school, etc., etc., etc. I told her, I'm sorry, but we really can't write on Shabbat. Eventually, they, I negotiated a deal with the mayor that only one child will go each Shabbat, but they will not do anything. And here's what happens. The first Shabbat that was supposed to go, my aunt Batya, who lives currently in Jerusalem, was 12. She said, I'll go. It happened to be Shabbat Rosh Hashanah. She went without her briefcase because she couldn't carry. After prayers, we returned home and anxiously awaited her arrival. When she came in, the mental strain was visible on her face. We made Kiddush and I asked her, how did it go? She says, my first class was math. The teacher wrote an exercise on the board and asked me to come and solve it. I walked to the board and she said, take the chalk and write the answer. I said, no, I can't write on Shabbat. Hearing this, she began to scream at me and forced the chalk into my hand, but she saw I wouldn't take it. 
So she called the principal who came with the vice principal. Both of them ordered me, take the chalk immediately, do the problem. But I repeated that on Shabbos, I don't write. They stopped their shouting and I stood silent. All the children in class were dumbstruck. They looked at me and the principal to see who would win. Suddenly the mayor walked in. He towered over us all. What's going on? Did the Chazan girl show up? Yes, she did, standing next to the board. Just look at her. She refuses to write. The mayor turned to me and said, why aren't you writing? You came to class to learn. Says, I'm a religious Jew and today is our holy day. I cannot write. Take the chalk and write, said the mayor. Nope. Finally, he asked the teacher to show him my notebook. I had left it in school on Friday. He looked through it and saw that my marks during the week were very good. He looked, he took the chalk in hand and said, tell me how to do the problem and I'll write. I did the problem out loud and he wrote it down. Is this correct? He asked the teacher. Yes, she replied, but she did not write it. He took my notebook and wrote a five on it, which meant very good. Then he turned to the principal and said, don't bother her anymore. Let her just sit and listen to the classes. And he left. That is a story of my aunt. Lives currently in Jerusalem. For me, these people are heroes, not because they were exceptional, but because they did exceptional things. And in these times that we think about the challenges we're going through, I think back to the challenges my family went through, and I remember that somewhere in my DNA, as a human being, as a Jew, I have strength I've never discovered. And now is the time to discover it. Good luck for us all. Wishing you an easy fast. I'll be back on on Thursday for Tisha B'Av. God bless you all. Stay safe, stay sane, and please God, a better world. The coming of Mashiach should happen very soon. Thank you.